Amen. In November 1971, Brother Lee was staying at our home in, in Detroit for a few nights because of a conference. And during a little snack after one of the evening meetings, my wife asked Brother Lee a question. And her simple question was, um, Brother Lee, how do we raise the children? And uh, I believe I will long remember his answer. It's already been 30 years. I still remember the answer. He said, oh, sister, that's the hardest matter. That's all he said. <laughs> and I'd like to begin by just pointing out my, some considerations. Why is this so difficult? It is the hardest matter. It, it surely is. It's difficult by the very nature of the responsibility of shaping human lives. I would say it's difficult because of cultural opinions, conflicting cultural opinions. It's difficult because of the self. Uh, surely you've learned to some extent how the self is deeply involved with our own children. Anyone who touches the child touches you and war breaks out. And this is very practical. I know of one situation in the full-time training. There was a brother that was here for a while and I believe we have lost track of the time the training brothers spent helping, taking care of this brother personally and collectively. And eventually he, you know, he uh, came to the end of the time he felt he could be in the training. And <coughs> after all this investment, the criticism comes. The brothers didn't care for my son. I, I don't say this because I have ought against him. It's just very easy for us to become critical whenever we feel that our son or daughter has not gotten the attention that we expect. This shows how close to the surface the self is. But the Lord, in his faithful teaching, touched this. And the real growth in taking care of children and young people takes place when the Lord begins to touch our natural life and our self in this matter. Then we become enlarged, and then we become, I would say, objective in understanding the situation. And the other thing I would mention, and then we'll get right into the outline because time will fly, is I don't know how much uh, you have considered this, 
But if we would learn to do all things in the principle of the body, which I'll explain in a moment, this will save us a lot of time. And what I mean by the principle of the body in this context is that some members of the body, perhaps through long and costly experience, gain something and learn something. And you, as a member of the body, may receive the benefit of that in one evening. It's just all it all flows to you. It doesn't mean you don't have your own experiences. Or you don't have to endlessly repeat. Because there is much wealth in the body. And you can begin by receiving that supply. Just as a gift in grace. I was thinking this morning, a little bit chuckling while I was getting my own breakfast. <laughs> which I'm happy to do. I said, it's taken me so long to learn these things. By the time I learn them, the kids are grown and gone. <laughs> and then, then, then what am I supposed to do? Well, then whatever we have truly learned, we can pass on. So sometimes, and I don't say this presumptuously, I tell the fourth-term brothers in the training as they're nearing the end, I tell them, if, if you like, you come over, Susan will make lasagna, and we'll have some fellowship, and I will save you 10 years in your married life. <laughs> 20 cannot do. 10, believe me, I can do. I will simply give you a list of real stupid things. <laughs> Just don't do these real dumb things. <laughs> and that will save you years, because if you do one of them, it will take your wife five years to get over it. <laughs> and and these, these are, it, it is not necessary for every newly married brother to have to repeat history and learn everything directly. A certain amount you can learn in the principle of the body. Then at a certain point, you have to have your own learning. You have to have your own experiences. By mentioning this, I'm not suggesting that I'm an expert or I'm a learned one. I stand in the Lord's presence. This is not my spirit. This is not my attitude. And I have nothing to say to experts. I can only share to those who are struggling, not to those who have attained. And in this spirit, we come now to a most precious focus in our fellowship. And that is the goal of our fostering. What is it that we are seeking to accomplish and it's good to be goal-oriented because we're not just here to be busy, we're here to progress. And we learn from Paul that 
his concern was to foster the development of the inward structure of the believer's being, of their life. That to be a Christian is not merely to have a change of behavior or to uh, improve in some kind of outward way. It's to have another life that produces another being in you. So Paul, in the very beginning of the epistle, refers to faith, the work of faith, and love, the labor of love, and to hope, the endurance of hope. And these three matters must function on two main levels. And what I mean by that is this. We ourselves, as parents and serving ones, need to be perfected in our faith, in our love, and in our hope. So that we have what Paul calls the work of faith. And we'll define that using the outline a little later. But if we only have work, we won't attain much. We have to go to the point of labor. Caring for children and young people is not merely a work. It is a labor. I have no idea what labor in birth is, but I have some idea of what labor in taking care of people is. And to have the labor without the love is unbearable because we can't avoid the labor, but love is the motivation and love is the power. And then we need a proper hope. I mentioned last night getting that email in which the writer said, I'm sorry that you're disappointed. And I could write back and say, I am not disappointed because I didn't explain, because I know where my hope is. The hope is not placed in some frail human being to accomplish what I expect. The hope is not generated by the self. The hope is based upon Christ himself that is Christ himself. And he never disappoints. We don't know how much disappointment we set ourselves up for because we have an improper hope, some kind of expectation, some kind of dream, Perhaps the saddest case I ever heard when I happened to see this dear brother at Rite Aid Drugstore just in the last couple weeks. This brother and I had gone through so many things together. And his son died in a beautiful way when he was 12. And sometime afterward, of course, it's a year's process of recovering, the brother told me he had hoped that his son would be an elder. I would suggest, brothers and sisters, we, we don't hope that our sons would be elders and co-workers and that our daughters would marry elders or co-workers or hope that they not marry elders <laughs> and co-workers <laughs> and would, would never go to Romania, that, that we would not have 
any kind of self-generated hope, that we'd be very simple. And I'll tell you what my hope is, that my daughter and sons would love the Lord and just follow Him and do His will, whatever it is. I don't know what it is. So we need a proper hope, and that hope produces the endurance so that you never give up for very long. You give up at the end of one hard day, or you give up for a while after one difficult situation, but something in your being causes you to endure, and that's the hope. So we need ourselves, the development of faith, love, and hope, ourselves. My basis for saying this, if you need a scriptural basis, is Hebrews 12, looking away unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Uh, I don't feel that my faith has been fully perfected. Do you? Do you feel? I believe that we all need more development in our faith so that we can pray the prayer of faith. How many prayers, when you pray, do you have the reality of Mark 11? It says, believe that you have received it and you will have it. We may not realize it, but many of our prayers are prayers in hope, not in faith. And the speaking must be in faith. The living must be in faith. Our work is in faith. The prayer is in faith. God's entire economy is in faith. I can't take the time to scan through First and Second Timothy but Paul again and again and again speaks of faith and the faith. I just mentioned one verse which was a comfort to me, and I'll be a little bit personal. Last night, uh, I came home, Susan asked, how was it? And, and I said, it was okay. And I was going to bed, I said, Susan, I, I don't think I can do this. I, I can't do this. To speak on these things, this is, this is too hard. And she gave me some good advice, two sentences. One, stay close to the Lord. The other is, go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> so I, I surely... Um, followed the, the latter sentence. And then I woke up thinking of this verse. And I like it. I think you'll also like it. Second Timothy 1.5 Having been reminded of the unfeigned faith in you. That we're not... Unfeigned means it's... There's no hypocrisy. Literally, it means unhypocritical faith. There is no pretending to be great heroes, to be giants. It's genuine. But listen to this. Which dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, 
Eunice, and I am persuaded, dwells also in you. This is, something was going on in Timothy's household with this extended family. Lois, the grandmother, has faith dwelling in her. Something that dwells has to be a person. The grandmother has faith dwelling. It's easy for grandmothers to have opinions dwelling in them. Oh, and then to see your daughter taking care of her children in a certain way, different from the way you took care of her. Oh, not that easy for faith to dwell in you. But faith dwells in the grandmother, and then faith dwells in the mother Eunice, and then it flows into Timothy. What a delightful childhood to grow up in an atmosphere of faith that dwells in your grandmother, that dwells in your mother, and now it's in Timothy. It was genuine. And Paul recognized it. Uh, I find this just very lovely, very comforting, that all the, the, the grandmas, you just let the Lord fill you with faith. You don't have concepts, opinions about how the younger ones should be in their family. And then your daughter, the mother, full of faith. I was visiting my elderly parents in Upper Michigan where they live for, for some mysterious reason. They like to live way up there. And I was just walking around one day and there was a kind of, actually it was a, Bible bookstore, I went in there to see if there was any stuff, and there was a very nice painting, and I thought of a young couple in Austin, Texas, that I've known for quite some time, and the sister was expecting. So I bought it for them and sent it to them, and it has a simple verse from 1 Samuel. It says, for this child... I prayed. Isn't that lovely? For this child I prayed. Prayed in faith. That's what prayer means. Prayer means that you don't trust yourself. You don't trust what you know. You don't trust your ability. You just pray. When I, when I was little, and I don't, like have a problem with my dear mother. I love my mother. I honor my mother. She could not infuse faith into me. She could only infuse anxiety into me. That's all she had at that time. I, I don't condemn her. But how good to be a mom, a pneumatic mom. And that little one on your bosom or that little one on your lap to whom you're reading Curious George for the 87th time. <laughs> and sometimes, you ever try to skip a page to save time? They've memorized the book already. <laughs> then they will tell you, you skipped that page. I don't understand the psychology of children. They're devious at times, it seems. But here you are, infusing faith into this little one. 
So let's consider some of these points on the development of faith. One says the Christian life is a life of faith, a life of believing. <laughs> and I, I have to stop already. I don't know how you feel about this. But one thing I'm committed to is I would never teach a child something that I know isn't true. So in my household, no tooth fairy. No tooth fairy who takes your tooth from under your pillow and leaves a quarter. Though today's kids might want an American Express card <laughs> left there. And, and no Easter bunny and no Santa Claus. No false thing. Now, I'll tell you a little story, and this reinforces it. My own childhood memories reinforce this. But I was taught there was a Santa Claus, so I believed in Santa Claus. And I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood. We were the one Gentile family on the block, only we celebrated Christmas. And I was maybe six or seven. It was in the wintertime. And I got in a fight with a girl named Marilyn Schechter. And she was older than I and bigger than I. So I was getting beat up by Marilyn Schechter. And I was on my back in a snowbank, having lost this fight. Then in a merciless way, having defeated me physically, she looks at me and says, Ronnie, that's what they used to call me. <laughs> There's no Santa Claus. I was desperate. My heart was broken. I forgot the humiliation of the fight. I went home to get comforted from my mother. Did my mother stand with Ronnie? Nay, she sided with Marilyn Schechter and had to tell me the truth. There was, in fact, no Santa Claus. No, that did not shake my capacity to believe. But I would ask, what's the point? Why teach things that we know are false? Why not just present the truth faithfully according to their capacity to understand? So as the children were growing up, no myth, no legend, no thunder that's caused by giants bowling in the sky. None of it. Because I treasure their God-created faculty on the human side of believing. And I want them to believe the real thing and not any false thing. It is amazing what people in our culture believe. It's incredible the things people will believe. I heard something just yesterday. There are some people who believe the 1969 moon landing was a hoax. The thing was filmed in the desert somewhere and we never went there and this is part of some kind of plot. Don't think this is a small thing that people can be warped 
not to believe what they should believe and to believe all kinds of outrageous, unreasonable things. But we want our children and young people to grow up in an atmosphere of truth, that we always tell them the truth, and the word we speak to them can become the faith that operates in them. Because the Christian life is a life of believing. At any point, if our believing is crippled, our Christian life is maimed. And we should expect that the enemy may assault us. We will see at the end. When anyone backslides, when any young person backslides, their faith will be weakened. And we should not simply pray in a general way, desperately, Lord, recover this dear one. We have to pray, Lord, strengthen their faith. Bring them back to their faith. When Simon Peter was about to have that big failure, how did the Lord pray? Remember? I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. The entire operation of God is in faith. Everything we say and do must be part of the work of faith. A, faith receives the divine things and realizes the spiritual and unseen things. Faith is the foundation of the basic structure of the Christian life. This is the, the bottom layer. If this layer is cracked, if it's weak, there is no foundation for the whole Christian life. We must be very careful in how we work to lay this foundation. And we ourselves need to be honest with the Lord and seek the Lord. How solid am I? Lord, make me unshakable in my being that whatever happens to me or anyone dear to me I would never be shaken. Paul told the Thessalonians he was worried that they would be stumbled by his affliction. He said, we've been appointed for this. Don't worry about us. And then he wrote the second epistle that someone wrote a letter. They sent an email, so to speak, to Thessalonica in Paul's name giving false information about the Lord's coming. And he said, we don't want you to be shaken. Eventually, brothers and sisters, they won't be in our hands. There needs to be something unshakable in our being and in theirs. I'm not superstitious. If I ever was, I'm not superstitious anymore. Anything can happen and everything can happen. And we don't want to end up being offended and shaken because we lived in a dream, assumed this or that would happen or assumed this or that would never happen. We're in the church. This doesn't happen. Well, we need to have this kind of foundation as the basic structure dwelling in our being. And there may be times, and the children should be able to think this way. I just lean on my dad. 
He doesn't shake. You can't move him. Yes, he's human. We may see him cry, but there's something unshakable. And that's my security. That's faith as the foundation built up within us. Day by day, we are living a believing life. Our living is absolutely a matter of believing. Roman 2, faith has two aspects, the objective aspect and the subjective aspect. And as I read through this section, there's something wonderful here and there's something practical here. And let me summarize it first. The objective faith, that's what we believe, the content of our belief. And we may liken that to a scenery. There you have a remarkable scene. And when we minister, we describe that scene, that picture. And when someone hears our word, that scene is infused into them. It's televised into their being, and it produces in them the ability to believe in that very thing. So if you are speaking to 11-year-olds concerning Christ's death on the cross for their sin, and you portray Christ crucified to them, in a proper way, you unveil Christ on the cross as their sin offering and their trespass offering. That scene is televised into their being. And it produces the ability to believe. And they believe in the very thing you present. This is crucial in all of our work we will see we have to have days, even lives, full of speaking, speaking the divine things, speaking the heavenly things. And opportunities present themselves at unusual times. You're going somewhere in the car, and something comes up. And don't look for some apostle, prophet, overseer, deacon, evangelist, shepherd, teacher to do the job you're the mom you're the dad you're the one who presents the scene of god's economy right there and they if they are to be raised in faith they need to be under the sound of a word again and again and again i appreciate brother benson's view of raising his children in the church he would present the scene of the church as a paradise. That's the only speaking he would allow to reach his children when they're young. When they're older, then they can learn the complexity of the situation. So we need to realize there is something called the objective faith. All the things we believe in. That is the faith. And we have subjective faith that is our God-given ability to believe in that. And faith in these two aspects is the foundation of the structure of our Christian life. The more we see concerning the scene of the objective faith, the more we will be perfected in our subjective faith. 
So we ourselves need to see more of Christ, more of God's economy, more of the body, more of the new man, more of the new Jerusalem, more of all of these things. The more we see, the more we believe. Then we have faith dwelling in us, and this is what we speak. We counter every negative thing, every lie. We will not lightly sit at the dinner table and talk critically of the church. There are young ears two or three feet away. We will not do this. We will speak to them the positive things. The church is the house of the living God. It's the pillar and base of the truth. This is the church. You may be suffering something in the church life. You may be involved in some complication in the church life. Is that what you will present to your sons and daughters? Or will you present the truth in faith? The church is glorious. It doesn't take any faith to see the condition of the church, but it takes faith to see the reality of the church according to God's economy, and that's what we speak. Anyone can see Jezebel is very active in Thyatira, but who can see Thyatira is a golden lampstand? The young ones will learn about Jezebel and this or that soon enough, and we're not presenting them a, a fantasy. We are speaking the truth. This is a big responsibility. Timothy didn't grow up in a kind of cynical atmosphere. Oh, we thought it was going to be wonderful, but now it's not so wonderful. It's really a, an unhappy place. It's obvious we're, we're miserable here. It's one thing for us to feel that way. It's another thing to impart that into a young life. I, I treasure and respect and was personally perfected by that fellowship that Benson shared. That we want our young ones to grow up in an atmosphere of faith. Faith receives the divine things. Faith realizes the spiritual and unseen things. This is how we live. Objective faith denotes that in which we believe, and subjective faith denotes the action of believing. The objective faith produces subjective believing, for our believing is out of the things we believe and is in the things we believe. The objective faith includes the contents of God's New Testament economy. When we accept the Word of God, it becomes our objective faith and our subjective faith. Recall that verse in 1 Timothy 2, uh, sorry, 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul said, You received our word not as the word of man, but as the word of God. Do you realize you can speak the word of God to your children? The word of God. You can have the faith. You speak in a very human way, and they receive the word, and they receive it as God's word. 
Is that not how little children think? Is that not how they should think? My mommy, my daddy represents God to me, and they speak a word to me, and I receive it as the word of God, and it operates. We have to reconsider, all of us, the nature of the speaking in our household. There was a situation, and this was a dear sister, but she had a reputation of being very critical. And she was sitting down at our dinner table, and she was starting to go on. And I stopped her in her tracks. You will not speak this way in this house. Unfortunately, she was hurt. She personalized it. Didn't have any light. But you are not going to sit here at my house, at my table, and fill the atmosphere of my household with that kind of critical, attacking talk concerning the church, the brothers, or the saints. It's not going to happen. I love you as my sister. I loved you then. I love you now, even though you're not meeting with us. But you're not talking that way in my house. My wife, my children, and I do not need that. That is death. That is not faith. That is death. So if we want faith to be developed, we ourselves need to be perfected in our faith so that no matter what we are going through, personally or corporately, we're not shaken. And what we pass on to our sons and daughters and our young is not what we ourselves are going through. It is that. It's the vision of, the, of God's economy that's clearer and brighter now after 35 years than it ever was. And if they sense you're going through something, then we don't have to hide it. Yes, Daddy is going through a hard time. But let me assure you, God is real. The Lord is on the throne. The church is wonderful. Don't you worry. Without the faith built up in us, there's no foundation. Three, when we receive a word concerning the objective faith, the contents of God's New Testament economy, spontaneously subjective faith is produced in us. So we just give word after word. From the time they're two or three years old, there is a God. He created all things. God is good. God is loving. God is faithful. You can trust God. You can always trust God. You can trust the word of God. God is true. God loves you. Their lives are filled with this kind of word from us because the kind of word they're going to get from the world will contradict everything we say. But our rod will swallow up the rod of the Egyptian magician. It will. We will speak in faith. We will speak in the Spirit. We will speak the Word of God. What we put in them will be the bottom layer of their being eventually. I fully believe this. That will come to the surface and overcome anything else and everything else that's put into them. But we have to speak it into them. 
If you read, I think it's Deuteronomy 6, but I may have the chapter wrong. Moses is saying to the Father, you speak of this all day long while you're on the way, while you're sitting down, while you're in your home. You speak of these things. There should not be a vacuum because they're speaking all the time over all the media, day and night. Our young cannot bear for there to be a vacuum of positive speaking in the household. This doesn't mean we're preaching. We're, we're irritable. We're irritating them. It just means in the normal course of things, we're speaking forth God's word. We're talking to them of the things. We're testifying of the things. How do you think it would affect a 12-year-old if while you're enjoying dessert, the dad would say, you know, I've never told you this before, but I'd like you to know something. Every drop of blood in my veins is for Christ and the church. I'd like you to know that by the Lord's mercy, I made a decision at a certain point in my life that I would turn my back on the world and the back on Christianity and anything it would offer and made an irrevocable decision to take the way of God's economy. You just, you just share that. Testifying. You think that 12-year-old boy will ever forget that? Then this will make sense. Now I know why you go to conferences and trainings and meetings and why we have people stay at our house and why the saints are in and out of our house. Now it makes sense. For we hear of the objective faith and subjective faith rises up in us. Then we respond to the objective faith by believing. Faith is related both to view and to sight. There is a view, a scene before us. We have the sight to see this view. And spontaneously, we have faith. So we need more sight. What do you see? As you look upon the Lord's recovery, what do you personally see? What is in your view? When you consider the church where you are, what is your view? What is the scene? Remember Brother Lee telling us about that prayer meeting in Shanghai? when the sister prayed that groaning, moaning prayer about the low condition of the church and Brother Nee shocked everyone. As soon as that sister was done, he prayed this uplifted prayer about how glorious and transcendent and uplifted the church was. How can our young people see something we don't see? How can they believe something we don't believe. I see the new Jerusalem. I see the body. I see the new man. I see the golden lampstand. I see the bride being prepared. I see God's organic salvation. I see Christ in his ascendancy. I see that Christ is the indwelling spirit. I see God's organic salvation. I don't believe my condition. I don't believe your condition. I believe in God's salvation. 
I don't believe in my failure. I don't believe in your failure. I believe in the ultimate triumph of God's complete salvation. And that's what I will speak. So we ourselves need the scene to be broadened. Then we have more faith. Then we will speak according to what we see and that will produce faith in those who hear. I'm coming back to this. We need the Lord's mercy, and not only the Lord's mercy, we need the Lord to be our person in everything we say to any child or young person. I speak positively how you can shepherd a saint in two or three sentences. And forgive me for being personal again, but the scene was at the Bren Center in the summer training of 1997 after Brother Lee went to the Lord. And I was walking through the crowd in the lobby and I saw a dear sister. She and her husband and son had lived in a certain state for many years and had passed through many, many difficult things. And she herself, had passed through a shaking time. And I had no thought, I had no intention. But when I saw her, I knew they had moved to another place. I said something like this. All that you have passed through is not in vain. You have much more of the Lord than you can possibly realize. And in this new situation, what you have of the Lord is going to flow out of you. I didn't say that to impress her, to make her feel good. It just came out of me. Then I turned around and looked back, and I could tell she was really touched. And now this sister is a mother among us. Two or three sentences. But likewise, two or three sentences can bring you down to the pit. Two or three sentences can raise you up to the height. So we really need to be under the view which gives us the faith that controls what we speak. Because it's not just about us. It's about so many young lives that are being shaped by us. And we can shape them just as Lois and Eunice shaped Timothy. Am I under one, under C? There is a view, a scene before us. We have the sight to see this view and spontaneously we have faith. When we have the view and the sight, we automatically have faith. In order to have more faith, would you like more faith? Would you like stronger, broader, greater faith? We need more view. We need more view. I believe after the three meetings on Wednesday night on the all-inclusive Christ, at least some of the saints have more view of Christ in ascendancy being the universal shepherd caring for all of his sheep wherever they are. Isn't that a wonderful view? And you see more, then you believe more, and that brings in the reality of what you believe. And you enter into that. When we have the view and the sight, we automatically have faith. Don't bemoan the fact that your faith is weak. Look away to Jesus, 
the author and perfecter of faith. He'll show you more, you'll see more, and you'll believe more. An increased view gives us increased sight, and increased sight results in increased faith. The extent of our faith depends on our sight, and the scope of our sight depends upon the measure of our view. So for the sake of our sons and daughters, and for the sake of the young people, we ourselves must go on so that they will not be hindered by us. We have, the elders have to go on so the church can go on, but there are many, many places where the seeking saints have no way to go on because the elders are stuck in oldness. And we cannot take someone further than we ourselves have gone. So for the sake of the church, not just for the sake of our spirituality, we want to see more. We want to gain more. We want to believe more. Then we have more faith. We have more word to speak. And others have their faith developed. Three, those who are burdened to work with the young people need to watch over their faith and to care for how they are doing in the objective and subjective aspects of our faith. You read these verses, Paul was very concerned. But we may not have had this in our view. And I would point out here that there are two particular parts of our humanity that are related to faith. And of these two parts, humanly speaking, are damaged. Our faith will be weakened. Faith is related to the will, and faith is related to the conscience. If a child grows up under a tyrannical, controlling environment, never given the liberty to make any human decision about anything, that will have an effect on their faith. The will has been not properly trained and not properly exercised. Of course, we don't want them stubborn and obstinate. In that sense, the will needs to be broken. But a proper human being should be able to make decisions. Should I buy this? Should I wear this? Should I have this kind of salad dressing? But there are situations there may be rare where the mother is so strong, the father is so strong, the child grows up hardly able to make a decision. My wife and I were having dinner, admittedly, with a troubled young lady we cared about. And she had to make a decision regarding what kind of salad dressing. And she could hardly bear to do it. To just to be a person and make a decision. I'm not going off into child psychology. I'm just sharing the principle from the Word. We have a will. Faith is related to the will. If you have a noodle will, you will not have a prevailing faith. When Thomas had trouble believing, he said, unless I see this or that, he didn't say, I cannot believe. He said, I will not believe. And faith is related to the conscience. If our conscience is wrecked, the faith will leak out. 
So we need to help the young ones, especially in junior high and high school, to care for their conscience for the sake of their faith. <coughs> Paul was eager to know about both aspects of the believer's faith. Uh, how to carry this out, we'll have to learn of the Lord. Be a good Christian worker is one who continually infuses others with the divine view, helping them to see the marvelous scenes on the heavenly television and to be impressed with them so that they may have the ability to believe. Meeting after meeting, we have to put this view again and again and again. And we touch what the Bible calls the law of faith. We present the scene. The scene enters into them. This infusion produces faith. And then in our care for them, we help them to maintain a good conscience. And we help them to be responsible in the exercise of their will. So that they eventually will will to will what God wills and be one will with him. But some of us, even in this room, need the Lord's healing, even in this matter of our being. It's not too late. Don't accept the lie of the enemy. It's too late. If we have just been wrongly cared for, what can we do about that? But I'd like to assure you of something. Whatever damage has been done to you, whatever wound you have suffered. Why you suffered it, I don't know. I'm not one of Job's comforters to give an opinion. But one thing I do know, if you let the Lord come there with his healing, restoring life, what once was a wound, even a profound wound, will become in Christ a deep capacity to shepherd the saints. Why it happened? Why God let it happen? I don't know. But it's at these times we need to be able to tell the enemy he is still my God. I still believe him. His heart is love. But I have no idea why this happened. But since it has happened, let it be a gain for God himself that now my being can be constituted with him and now there's the capacity to deeply feel with the saints, to suffer with them, to care for them. In this way, the Lord destroys the work of the devil in us all and uplifts our being and brings us into his shepherding spirit and heart. It's wonderful. And I assure you, the young ones, the young people, even the saints, they will know to whom they can go. It's almost like an instinct. They won't go because you have a position. They won't go because you are a so-called worker. They may go to you for official things, but when they have need, they will go where the reality is. And they will open deeply and they will receive an abundant supply. I believe. This is faith. I believe. 
that in the body of Christ there is an answer for everyone. The members collectively have experienced so many things that if we will be brought into the spirit of the body, I believe that in the body that experience has already taken place. Paul knew that once we lose sight of the contents of God's New Testament economy, we will be shaken and removed from the line of faith. He knew this. He's very realistic. These are young believers. There is a fierce enemy. He said we wanted to come, but Satan hindered us. We're at war. This morning I woke up. Eventually I had to tell my wife, she said, are you okay? I said, I'm okay. But I was inwardly crying out to the Lord, how long must I still be under the memory of when I was struck by a car when I was seven? I can still feel the thud hit my body and all that happened. Then how... When I went to McCullough School, then I was publicly humiliated because now the school safety flag was taken down because Ronnie Kangas ran into the street after a birthday party with a basket full of candy and he didn't look to the right and to the left and a man who was driving a car with a little child in his lap hit him. But I was okay and my dad took me in the house and he told my mother, and she about ready collapsed and I was seven years old and it fell upon me to comfort my mother with tears. Why do I say this? I'm not trying to be dramatic. The enemy wanted to kill me when I was seven. You think that's too much to say? He wanted to kill me when I was seven. But maybe my angel was working, whatever was working. 54 years later, Satan, here I am. Hiding in Christ and in the body. So we have to realize we are living in a state of war. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be fearful. But we should be concerned that serious things can happen to the faith of the young and we must be burdened for their faith. My goodness, in certain churches, Certain outrageous things may happen to the saints. They may have an incredible fall and departure. And we have to realize so many young people could be shaken by that. Here was someone they trusted. Here was someone they loved. And if that person could do that, where can we stand? At that point, they're very vulnerable. We must cover them. We must fight for them. This is the enemy's doing. We do not agree that any of us be shaken. The Lord allowed Simon Peter and all the brothers to be sifted by the enemy, but he said, I have prayed for you. Who is praying with him? That their faith would not fail. Yes, this one is far off over there. I got another email from someone, not written in self-pity, but I would say in fierce honesty, And this person said, I do not trust myself. I do not trust my husband. 
I do not trust the elders, I do not trust the church, and I do not even trust the Lord. But I believe underneath that is still the bedrock of faith. Then how should we pray? Lord, we ask life for this one. We ask that their faith would not fail. Bring them back to their first faith. Show this one the scene again of your economy. Show this one yourself. Those who backslide experience some loss of faith and may no longer have a view of the objective faith. What we're going to do, brothers and sisters, I'll share for another five or seven minutes, then we'll take five minutes to pray. So please just let me get out the rest of this burden, okay? I treasure your sharing. But if, if I could get the word out and then we could pray, maybe that'll be okay for this session. Is that all right? Those who backslide experience some loss of faith and may no longer have a view of the objective faith. They may not lose their faith entirely. I would say that's not possible. But it can really be eclipsed. Then all the things they heard are vanity to them. Nothing's real. They've lost a view. When someone loses sight of God's New Testament economy, his subjective faith, the believing action within him, also diminishes. You heard me quote Brother Nee say of Joseph in the Old Testament, he who sees endures. You just see. How can you not see? I saw the sheaves bowing down. I saw the sun, moon, and stars worshiping. How can I not see it? And it carries you through everything. But when this view is blocked, something dies within you. Something is weakened within you. Like Peter in the boat, the Lord is walking on the water. Peter is not presumptuous. He says, Lord, say the word and I'll come to you. And Peter's doing okay as long as he's looking in the right direction. Then he gets realistic and says, what am I doing? Look at the wind. Look at the water. Look at the Lord. Look at the water. Look at the wind. And he looks at the environment and he starts thinking. Uh, none of us is invincible. Oh, it's one thing to be in a meeting and say, I look away to Jesus. Then you get out there on the waves and the wind is howling. Don't think you'll be this big hero. Oh, I'll just always look away to Jesus. That's your self-confidence. That's not faith. That's your self-confidence. You'll, you'll be down. The water will be up to here. We're, we're all the same, you know. But... Have you seen him? Do you see him now? Crowned with glory and honor. The glorious God-man Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. What's real? The environment or him? The ability within us to believe is always the result of having a proper view of God's New Testament economy. So, we do have some views. Don't say you don't have any views. You've got lots of views. 
but we need more of you. We just present the view again and again and again. Eventually, there will be the response. B, when we lose sight of God's economy, all that we have heard becomes vain. Therefore, it is a dreadful matter to lose sight of God's economy. I'm not asking you to speak of this, but haven't you had bouts of this? Where, where the whole thing seems to be in vain. What, what, what are you talking about? All-inclusive Christ, life-giving spirit, this and that. It's just terms, what, words, it's vain. Well, that's a symptom of waning faith related to losing sight of God's economy. So again and again and again, while I have breath and am in the flesh, we will speak of God's economy. If we go to the Lord because he delays, may the Lord raise up another generation more clear and more absolute. And they will keep presenting the scene again and again and again to produce the faith in us to substantiate. Because it's a dreadful matter to lose sight of God's economy. I would appeal to you for the sake of your household. Don't let this happen. It's not just about you personally anymore. There's a wife, there's a son, there's a daughter. There are the young people in the church. There are the children in the church. I'm not saying you pretend, but for love for them, don't lose sight, don't lose heart. In order to help others, we ourselves must always be going on. But we're not going on selfishly. We're going on with the realization that my advance is for your advance. My seeing is for your seeing. You need a time of pursuing the Lord, sisters who are mothers, for yourself. One of the hardest things for overwhelmed mothers to do is to take care of themselves. And how to schedule it, I have no idea. My wife wrote a poem once, something like an ode to a cold cup of tea because she, she had a moment and made tea for herself and set it down because there was a need, got overwhelmed with the environment, forgot about it, and three hours later relocated the tea, which is now cold. So I somewhat understand the seemingly impossibility of a regular schedule sometimes. But don't feel guilty about having some time alone to feed on the Lord and to see the divine view. This is the most helpful thing to your whole family. And finally, four, the work of faith includes all the actions that issue out of our living faith. It doesn't mean, now I'm, I'm going to do the work of faith. I'm going to really be endeavoring. I'm going to be on time for the planning sessions. I'm really going to get into this craft business. I'm going to do the work of faith. That's not the work of faith. I don't know what that is. Here is the work of faith. Genuine faith is never in vain. Rather, a certain kind of work will always issue from living faith. The work of faith is not the performing of a certain task or the doing of certain things to help others. On the contrary, the work of faith is our daily action as believers. The action that is the product of our faith. 
Don't think if there's no action in your daily life, Lord's Day morning, 9.30, you turn it on and have a work of faith for the children's meeting, then you turn it off when the parent finally comes to get the last recalcitrant child at 12.45, then you go home and no more work of faith. What is this? The work of faith is the totality of our actions and our behavior and of our relationships in our whole life. So then what we are with the saints is just a corporate expression of what we're becoming in our daily life. The work of faith denotes all the proper actions of a genuine believer. I, 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 like, I like my children to, to realize we are a family who gives to the Lord and to the church. And we give according to a certain principle. And we give according to the principle of the first fruits belong to the Lord. This is part of our faith. And when we migrated to Chicago, not having a place to stay, not having a job, putting everything in Hertz trucks and trekking across the country, maybe you wouldn't quite do it again. On the other hand, maybe that's just what we should do again. That was an action of faith. That was a work of faith. And so the faith we have will issue in all kinds of actions in our daily living prayers and thanksgivings and so many things. Faith works, acts, and issues in many things. In particular, it causes us to turn to God from everything else. The work of faith begins with turning to God from idols and anyone who has faith will turn to God from idols. Are there not idols all around? Uh, I, I just don't know what I would do now. If I had young children, how to, how to handle the internet thing, how to handle what's on television. I, I, I just don't know what they have access to. But we believe that when the faith comes, they will turn. They will turn to God from idols. Eventually, something will have to be infused into them that they just turn. They will not go to that website. They will not surf the net in that way. They will not participate in this. That's an idol. They are turning to God. Something is in them, operating in them, to turn them to God from everything else. The beginning of the Christian life consists in turning to God from idols. Anything other than God that draws our attention or that distracts us from God is an idol. Many believers still need a further turn from certain idols to God. So this is the presentation on the development of faith. Could we have a few minutes to pray? Then we'll take a break. Let's just pray in, in, first of all, in twos and threes, and then maybe we can pray all together for another minute. 